you're asleep. You know, I've noticed usually when first service is at 8.15, first service is a sleepy crowd. But I've noticed since we switched, it's second service, so we're awake. Hey, the, <clears throat> the slide behind me is the cover <clears throat> Excuse me. of a book I came across several years ago now. It was recommended in something I'd read. And the author, who has since died, was a professor at Baylor in the seminary there. The title of the book is The Listening Heart, if you can read that, Vocation and the Crisis of Modern Culture. A long title, but the key thought is this throughout the book. It's that life, and we would say particularly for a Christian, Uh, Life is not something that we've got to figure out or get creative over in at least one key sense, and it's this. Uh, God calls us, and our responsibility is to respond to His call. And that's what vocation in that title means. You know, I don't know if we speak in this language much anymore. Growing up as a Roman Catholic, when you talked about vocations... You were talking about people that believed they were going to grow up to be a priest or a nun. Sometimes we might say today, uh, what is your vocation? And by that we mean, excuse me, by that we mean, what is your career? What, What path in life did you choose to pursue to earn a living? And it's interesting because vocation isn't something you and I can choose by its very definition. Vocation means calling. You and I don't call ourselves. Calling means somebody else calls and I respond. And that's the thesis of his book. Let me read part of his introduction. He's talking here about the sense of community that in our culture, the book is written probably 15 years ago, had lost a sense of community. And in that context, he talked about this related to vocation or calling. He said this, The intention of this book is to explore the possibility that the loss of community, we could insert here, thinking of the text we'll be in in 1 Timothy, godliness or faithfulness, to explore the possibility that the loss of godliness, faithfulness, community, is related to the loss of a sense of vocation. I want to suggest in different ways that the conviction of a divine calling draws from us the kinds of commitment, the level of patience, and the degree of hope that makes community life possible, godliness, faithfulness possible. It's that I have a sense of calling. It's that my life is infused with purpose because I've been called. I've heard the call and I've responded. That term call is from Latin vocatio. If, I, if you go to the Greek New Testament and you look up the word church, it comes from the Greek ekklesia. And in Greek, this, the term that corresponds with vocatio is klesis. And the word church is ek, which is out of klesis, uh, the outcalled group. When we talk about Christians and those who inhabit the church, the ekklesia of Jesus Christ, we're talking about people who by our very definition, by the inception of the concept of the church, or our faith, we're talking about people who have responded to the call. That God called in the gospel, and we said yes, and we became part of that called out group. Christians are the group that has already heard a call and responded. And all of life, 
subsequent to that initial hearing the word and responding is meant to follow that same pattern. God has called and I answer. God has determined the call on my life and it's my responsibility simply to be faithful, responsible with the call He's placed on me. I don't have to create it. I don't figure it out. I respond to the call God places on my life. Oz Guinness wrote another book along the same line. It's called The Call. And in it, he says this, Calling is the truth that God calls us to Himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out as a response to His summons and His service. So if, if you get life, if you get a reference for life based on call, on vocation, it transforms the way we see the decisions we make. It transforms the way we see our responsibility. I don't have to get creative, and you don't either, in how to live life successfully. We respond to God's call. Some of that's pretty general, right? In the sense that Scripture lays out for us what's incumbent on us as God's children in all kinds of ways. Other things, though, are quite specific. God's call on my life will be a little different than God's call on your life. But if you're a Christian, you've been called. And by the way, the gospel itself, when we communicate the message of the gospel to the world, that God's holy and we're not, that Jesus came to die for sinners like us so that God could forgive us, expunge our sin, that's a call. In fact, if you remember in Acts 17, God calls all men everywhere to repent. That's the preaching of the gospel. God's word to the nations is a call to repent and live. God's call to the Christian who's heard that and responded in faith is to get on with the rest of God's call on our life. And we'll talk about that a little bit here yet. Guys, at a foundational level, if you're a Christian this morning, you say, I've trusted Christ. I know Jesus is my Savior. God is my Father. You are already commissioned in the name of God the Father. You are already on assignment for Christ our Savior. And your life is a mission, by definition. If you're a Christian, you are on mission. It's your responsibility to respond to God's call. That's the assignment, if you will. Well, we're winding down. This is the last. This is the 15th message out of 1 Timothy in the series titled God's House. And we've covered numbers of bases. We'll review those real briefly just before we end this morning. But as Paul winds down in the end of chapter 6, he closes on this theme. He's telling his protege, Timothy, Timothy, you've got to be faithful to God's call on your life. You're charged, you're commanded, you're commissioned, and you've got to respond faithfully. You remember the whole letter is Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, his representative, who's at the church in Ephesus, to set things straight. And as he winds that whole thing down, he says... Tim, you've got to be faithful to God's call on your life. So that's where we will end this morning on that letter. You guys remember Paul's life? He didn't start as Paul, did he? Do you remember how he started? It was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember what kind of a guy Saul of Tarsus was? Uh, he was an energetic guy, wasn't he? If you remember the story in Acts, when they were stoning Stephen, Saul was there. He'd voted against him. Give him death. 
When they're throwing their clothes off so that they can hurl the stones more freely at Stephen, Saul is there holding those clothing articles. Saul, in Acts chapter 9, is given letters by the church in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to persecute Christians. And what happens to him on the road to Damascus? So he's, he's on a clear path. He knows what he's about. And somehow on the way to Damascus, God knocks him down and God interrupts his plans and God calls him. And Saul of Tarsus will become Paul the Apostle because God knocked him down and God said, and guys, this is important to get. He didn't ask Saul's permission. He didn't say, let's talk this over. I have a better plan I'd like to offer you. The story in Acts 9 is quite clear. God knocks him down, and God says, you're mine. And this is how I'm going to use your life. You're going to be my key spokesman to the Gentiles. You're a Jew. You're going to get out of the Jewish culture, and you're going to go to the nations, and you're going to proclaim the one you've been persecuting, Jesus. You are now going to be his spokesman to the nation. That God called Saul of Tarsus. He became Paul the Apostle. So Saul, when he looks back at his life, he sees, I'm a guy that God struck down and forcefully, uniquely, we might say, called to himself and gave a mission. And it's that guy with that background that is writing to Timothy saying, Tim, God has a call on your life and you've got to be faithful to discharge it. And that's exactly what you see as you work through 1 Timothy. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 1, Paul starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul, Paul didn't say, Lord, I would like to be your apostle. He says, God commanded me to be an apostle. You know, Paul and Timothy had traveled together. They knew each other well. But when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I'm writing with the authority of an apostle. I'm not your buddy here telling you some good ideas. I'm an apostle and I'm an apostle only because God commanded it. God called me to be an apostle. So it's a guy who's been called by God, writing to Timothy, telling him, you've been called by God, and you've got to be faithful to God's call as I have been to God's call. And you see this throughout the epistle. If you go down to chapter 1, verse 12, he says there, uh, thanking Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. It's the same thought. Jesus appointed Paul to His service. You go later down into chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, for the gospel, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. It's not His choice. God appointed him a preacher and an apostle. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 9, this is Paul's given a little bit of his own story there. But he basically says there, fairly well-known verse, he says, woe is, woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. He said, if I did this because I chose to, I might be due a reward by God when I got to heaven. Because I had a good idea, I proclaimed the gospel. But Paul here says, that's not the deal. The deal is I've been entrusted with a stewardship. And I answer for this. I didn't ask for this. God, the Lord of the church, the house, the household of faith, gave me this responsibility. And I'll answer for it. That term steward has to do with someone discharging a responsibility in a household. You remember Paul said the church is the household of God. 
And God said to Paul, I'm giving you this responsibility. You're my spokesman to the Gentiles. You're an apostle. He didn't choose it. It was put on him. It's a responsibility he bears. It's his calling. So when he writes to Timothy, it's a guy who knows I've been called by God and my response is to be faithful. Do you guys, has anybody else run track, by the way? So if you run in a relay race, you know, where, where, do you, where do you win or lose the relay races? At the baton pass. This is, I cringe when I see this, right? Those guys are fit, right? Man, can they run. But did they win this race? They lost this race, didn't they? Because they failed at the baton pass. In 1 Timothy, Paul, we're guessing this is around 63 AD or so. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling him, hey, you've got to get this stuff together in the church at Ephesus. A little later, probably just a few years later, when Paul is in prison and he knows he's going to be executed, he writes his second letter to Timothy. It's the last letter he pens. And it's like this baton pass. Paul knows, I'm going to be executed. My life is almost over. And Timothy is the key guy I've invested in. And my role, the responsibility for me to discharge personally, will be over soon. But I'm trying to make sure that the baton is passed successfully to Timothy so the gospel continues to be clearly proclaimed and the church continues to be built up in the faith. So in 2 Timothy, it's a little more pointed because Paul's going to die and he wants to make sure Tim gets the message, you've got to discharge your responsibility. You've got to answer God's call on your life. You see this in chapter 2, verse 2 of 2 Timothy when Paul says, the things you have heard from me, the teachings, the truth of the gospel that I've passed to you, you turn around and you pass to other men who will themselves be faithful to turn around and pass the baton again. In 2 Timothy, death is imminent. Paul says, I'm passing you the baton of faith. You be faithful to run your leg of the race and pass the baton on to other men who will do the same thing in their turn. You get into chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 of that same letter, 2 Timothy. He then says, thinking of the baton pass, the end of his life, Timothy's got to be responsible. He says, I charge you, I command you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, preach the truth, the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, Exhort with complete patience and teaching. I charge you, I command you. My leg is almost over, yours isn't. You've got to keep on, you've got to keep the faith. He says last, this is from 2 Timothy again, in chapter 4, verse 7. So Paul's the guy that was called by God. He's been running his race, it's almost over. He's telling Timothy, you've got to do the same thing. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Because he's, he's done. He's all but done because he's almost executed. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he's trying to tell Timothy to do the same thing. Paul says, I'm a wrestler in the arena that God put me in. I have fought the fight. God commissioned me to fight. I have run the race of life that God set me on. I didn't choose those things. God put me in that fight. God put me on that race course. He says, I have kept the faith. There's a great uh, poem from World War I by John McRae. 
And it's kind of like this. It, it's a swan song. You know, Timothy wrote 2 Timothy, keep the faith, Tim, to Timothy right before his death. In this poem, Flanders Fields, the voice you hear is the voice of those who have recently died in the trench warfare of France. And it's the voice of the dead calling to the living to take the baton and carry on the fight. And so in that context, it said, to you from failing hands, we're done. To you from failing hands, we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. Our race is over. We've passed the baton to you. You carry on. You keep the faith with us. It's that same thought with Paul and Timothy. I finished my race. Yours is not over. You take the baton. You carry on. Now, before we get to the passages in which Paul specifically commands and charges Timothy, I'll just point out that these are sprinkled through the whole letter. It closes on this in chapter 6. But these charges, these encouragements, these exhortations to faithfulness to Timothy are scattered throughout. So he hears it over and over and over again in this same epistle. There's probably a reason for that. He's got to hear the same thing over and over and over again. He's got to be encouraged that his life is a race, that he has been called, that he has a vocation to answer to. He's got to be reminded of that. When you read 2 Timothy, you get a little more insight into what kind of a person Timothy was, and he tended to be timid, and he tended to be fearful, and he tended to drop out of the race. And so Paul is telling him, once here, then again, then again, and again, Tim, you've got to be faithful. Don't quit the race early. So you see this first in chapter 1 at verse 18, when he says, this charge... I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. I charge you, he says. I command you. I put you under authority to fulfill your duties. If you remember way back in chapter 1, the situation Timothy went to was one in which numerous guys are teaching false doctrine. And so Tim's there to set those things straight. And so there are guys that Paul says elsewhere in the epistle, they've wandered into vain discussion. They've suffered spiritual shipwreck. They've wandered away from the faith. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, you're the antidote to that false teaching that's been going on in the church in Ephesus. It's your role, it's your call, it's your responsibility to be the one who speaks truth into error. So I charge you, this is what responsibility for you looks like. This is God's call on your life. You've got to set the record straight because many others in the church had not. They'd gone off the way, right or left, out of the faith. He says this in chapter 4, verse 14, Don't neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul is inferring a couple of different things here. He says to Timothy, you have spiritual gifts that you'll answer for. God has given you spiritual gifts, and one day when you see Him face to face, you'll give an account for those gifts He gave you. Friends, every Christian has been entrusted with spiritual gifts by the Spirit 
to build up others in the body of Christ. That's in Ephesians 4, it's in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Do you know what it is? That'd be a key question, right? What's my spiritual gift? And are you using it? You've got gifts, it's a given. If you don't know what they are, it's your responsibility to find out. If you know what they are, it's your responsibility to discharge them. That's part of your responding to God's call. What are your spiritual gifts? Timothy's been entrusted the stewardship of spiritual abilities God means him to use to build up God's house. That could be evangelism or teaching or leading or mercy or serving. All of us have some gifts. Timothy had gifts. He would answer for them. Paul says, you've got gifts. And he says, Timothy, you were commissioned when the council of elders prayed over you. They laid hands on you. And we're to understand that when the church lays hands on people and commissions them formally, sometimes called ordination, the thought is that with the authority of Christ and heaven, the church commissions, calls this person to fulfill a key responsibility. So he's up in the ante on Timothy here to say, it's not just about you correcting false teaching. You have spiritual gifts given by God you must be responsible for. And you've been formally commissioned by heaven and heaven's representatives, the elders in the church. You're commissioned by them. That's God's call on your life as well. You must be faithful to the gift God gave and to the call God gave through the laying on of hands. He ups the ante even more in chapter 5. He's building his case. He's building his case, Tim, you've got to be responsible for God's call on your life. In chapter 5, he ups it even more. If you look at verse 21 there, he puts it in the context of heaven and heaven as witness. So there he writes, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you. So imagine this, Timothy is reading this letter from his friend Paul, who's also the apostle. But when he gets to chapter 5, Paul now says... It's not my voice merely that you should hear through this letter, but that, Timothy, you need to see behind this letter and behind me that God the Father and Jesus your Savior and the angels of heaven are bearing witness that you have been charged, called, and commissioned. Heaven is watching. Heaven is bearing witness to whether you're faithful or not. So it's not just Paul, his friend, his travel companion, Tell him, by the way, you ought to do these things. Paul says, it is God the Father, it is Jesus your Savior, it is the heavens of angel bearing witness. You've been called, you've been commissioned. Are you being faithful? Heaven is watching. Guys, this is the other thing. You're always being watched. Heaven is watching us all the time. But other people are watching you too. When people in the church that know you, see you, and your lifestyle and decisions you make, do they see the gospel affirmed? Do they see your spiritual gifts being exercised? Do they see you answering God's call on your life? Are others who see you and know you, are they being encouraged in their own response to God's call or discouraged based on our faithfulness? The other thing is this. One of the key themes throughout this whole epistle has been this. The church is meant to affirm, proclaim, and adorn the gospel. When people look at your life or mine and they know we're Christians, when they look at the church that we're a part of, 
Do they hear the gospel, the message of Jesus, clearly proclaimed? And do they see it clearly affirmed in the way we live and respond and interact in the world? Because the world is watching. Do they see the gospel affirmed through the church? That's part of the deal. We all make that decision. What, what does the world think of the church? We all are determining that by the way we answer our own vocation and call. And last, as far as this progression, you get to chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Paul says this, As for you, O man of God, you're God's man, Tim. As for you, O man of God, flee, flee lust, flee the love of money, pursue, these are all active verbs, pursue righteousness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life, I charge you to keep the commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you and I ask ourselves, how long must I be faithful? At what point can I settle down and take it easy? The answer is we're on post, we're on duty, we're on call until Jesus comes or we breathe our last, give up our spirit. We're called and we're commissioned until Jesus comes or until our life ends. There's no rest in this sense. And he closes the whole epistle this way. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Remember here again that what was on the line was orthodox teaching about Jesus and the importance of the gospel. The way it informed all of life. So he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then he says this. This is a typical close of a letter when he says, grace be with you. But in this context, we understand that he's telling Timothy, it's not for you to work up the energy, the ability to fulfill God's call on your life. The grace of God is sufficient for you to fulfill God's call. When we hear this, we should not feel like somebody has placed a burden on our back. We should feel liberated. That every Christian's life is infused with purpose because God has called us. And then God Himself is the one through His grace and by His Spirit and sometimes through the encouragement of each other that is providing us the ability to be faithful. So on one hand, He ends with that charge, guard the deposit entrusted to you, but He does so in the context of the grace of God. Grace be with you. God's grace for you your responsibility to God's call, God's grace is sufficient for you to fulfill and be faithful to the end. I want to switch gears a little bit here uh, just to bring in this theme of the race and faithfulness to the end. This is out of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Do you guys remember in Hebrews 11 that it, it's the hall of fame? It's for those faithful believers that had preceded and it's Abraham and Isaac and it's Rahab. It's all those people who had heard God's call and then been faithful. So you get that all through chapter 11. And when you get to chapter 12, we read this. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The cloud of witnesses are the faithful from ages past that have preceded us in this race. They've already finished. Lay aside everything, anything that cl clings to you, that weighs you down in this race, and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God. You guys ever been in a, maybe KU in the stadium when a marathon was finished? Or have you ever seen a marathon finished? You know, marathon's a long race. It's too long to run around a track, right? 26 miles and change. So they don't run it on a track. They run it through town. It finishes in the stadium, though. So this is the picture. The author says this. The faithful saints of the ages past, they finish their race and they're seated in the stadium. And they're watching you as you finish your race. You want to successfully cross the finish line and join them. And it's not just them, but in the victor's stand, Jesus is already there. And so he says, you fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who gave you faith, the author, and the one who perfects your faith. You fix your eyes on him, and you finish your race like those saints from prior ages did theirs. Finish the race. Don't give up early. Be faithful to death, Paul says in Revelation 2, and God will give you the crown of life. That's the picture here. Just like in 2 Timothy, here in Hebrews 12, life is a race. Faithfulness requires that we run it right to the end. If you talk about Paul, the apostle, or you talk about Timothy, you're talking about guys that are in the Bible. We know them by name, right? We memorize the verses and all, and all that stuff. But if you say, I'm not Paul, I'm not Timothy... I'm not an important person in this world, whatever an important person in this world looks like. I'm not sure God has really called me. I'm not sure I have the call of God on my life. Then let me just offer a couple thoughts along that line. Um, again, if you're a Christian, you've already been entrusted with spiritual gifts. You have, as a Christian, by the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual abilities to build up the church of Jesus Christ. You have them. It's a given. It's not if. So the question becomes, what are my spiritual gifts? Am I using them? That's God's call on you. When he gives you the gifts, he calls you to use them in his name to build up the church. That's part of his call. The other is this. What's the spheres of life and influence God has already placed me in? You know, when we read the Bible, a lot of our call is already determined just by the roles we have in life. So if I'm a husband, part of God's call in my life is to love my wife. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. If I'm a wife, part of my call is to respect and submit, support my husband. That's a given. My role has determined that. If I'm a child, God's call on my life is to submit to, to obey my parents. That's being a godly child. Responding to God's call is obedience, faithfulness to my parents. But you can see how this goes. You're in spheres of influence and relationships right now, and through those, God has called and has given you responsibility to discharge. We're, we are told to encourage each other, to pray for each other, right? As people who love our neighbors, we're called to share the hope of the gospel we have with those around us. So guys, there, there's all kinds of areas in life in which God has already called us by His Word. We don't have to figure anything else out. We just have to know what that call looks like. We have to be in the scriptures to know that. There's nothing, there's nothing. If you do something in Christ's name, there's nothing that's insignificant. If you do something for Christ, everything becomes significant. Listen to this from a poet from 100 years ago and changed. Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote this on this theme. He said, to lift up the hands in prayer... So I'm focused, it's worship. To lift up the hands in prayer gives God 
glory. But a man with a dung fork in his hand, or a woman with a slop pail, old, old family farm images, give him glory too. He is so great that all things give him glory, if you mean they should. So this informs all of life, that everything and anything I do in life can be an act of service, a response to God's call on my life to worship Him in everything that I do. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of some other things along the same line. We could say changing diapers and feeding infants glorifies God as a response to God's call in our life. Attending to our studies. If you're a student, slacking off should not be an option. Why? Because God's call to you is to be a diligent student. To work hard at your studies. That honors God. Being intentional in engaging others. To encourage them to share the hope of the gospel. Serving children. We're going to do VBS here in one week, I think. I could be wrong. I think it's a week from tomorrow. 54 kids. Those teachers that are serving those kids, that's a response to God's call. That's a worshipful offering to God because it's done in Christ's name. Everything is infused with significance and meaning when it's done as a response to God's call. Now, even if you buy... Um, by the way, if you don't know your spiritual gifts, you holler and we'll figure those out together, okay? We've got ways to do that. <clears throat> if you say, okay, I'll buy that I'm gifted, even if I'm not sure right now what that looks like, and I'm called, I'm commissioned to, to live my life as a response to God's calling, I'm not sure what that ultimately looks like. And then we say, well, we're okay, because we've got a good starting point, right? <clears throat> if you go back to the life of Abram, Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and one day God called him, Genesis 12. God called Abram, and he said, Abram, get up, leave your house, your father's household, you're going to leave this area, you're going to Go to the place I'll show you. Every step Abram took up through the Fertile Crescent and down to the land of promise, every step was a step of faith because he did not know where God was taking him. He didn't know the land of promise on a map as that in his day. All he knew was, I'm going where God tells me to go. So every step Abram took was a step of faith. And guys, wherever you're at today, the one thing that you know God means you to do today, you do that, and he'll show you the next thing. Be faithful today with the thing you know to do, and God will be faithful to show you tomorrow what answering the call looks like tomorrow. You don't have to have the big plan laid out. You don't have to know the twists and the turns in your race today. God will show you when the time is right. Just be faithful today. And with that, nothing you and I do can replace faithfulness whether you, call, you could call this faithfulness, you can call it obedience. Nothing replaces faithfulness to God's call on our life. You and I can do a million things. We can come up with creative, great ideas that will, in the long run, burn up at the judgment seat of Christ because they're not a faithful response to what God has commissioned us to do. Nothing replaces faithfulness to God's call on our life. There's a couple of references on your study sheet. You can look at those. We're winding down the whole series today, and, and let me do so quickly with this. This is a, a very, very brief skim or reminder of some of the things that we've already gone through. Do you remember that the church, it's not our church, it's God's household. We don't make the rules, God does. 
We don't come up with the bright ideas. God tells us this is what I want and this is how I want it. We are called, guys, to affirm the historic Orthodox teaching of the faith. said in first service, this is going to become more and more difficult for the church. We live in very interesting times. Interesting is an interesting word. But as you see, the, the tide of this postmodern, post-Christian culture, it's going to become more and more difficult for churches to teach and live out the faith. The church must continue. This was from chapter 1. Affirm the historic Orthodox teaching of the apostles and the prophets. The church is called to pray for the world around us. Guys, this is a great time to pray for the world around us. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, we pray for kings and those in authority. This is a good time to pray for those in authority. This is a good time to be sharing the gospel. The weight and the crunch of the world is coming more and more menacingly against the church. It's going to get far, far worse. The church has to be ready for that. We're praying for the people that persecute us. The persecution will get worse. And we're praying for our persecutors. Because at the end of the day, the United States of America is not inherently the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is bigger. We're praying for those who persecute the church that God will lead them, give them the repentance that leads to life. We're affirming God's kind of godly leadership, Christ-like humble servant leadership in the church. We're treating each other as fellow members in God's family. Do you remember from chapter 4? We are brothers and sisters in faith. We have that kind of affection and belief and encouragement and support for each other. We are spiritual fathers and mothers to each other or children. We're bringing that kind of familial dedication to each other. And at the end of the day, we're letting the truth of the gospel and its transforming power affect everything we're doing. So let me close with this prayer. May we be faithful in discharging our call in the name of our Father to the glory of our Savior through the power of the Spirit. Amen.